Hey everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Exploring Kodawari. We are joined this time by our friend and accomplished composer Nathan Hudson. Nathan recently graduated with a PhD in composition from Stony Brook University, which is where me and my co-host Yanka met him. Um, but he's got a long and impressive bio that you can read on his website, which I linked in the episode notes. In this episode, we talked about what it means to major in music composition, how a composer goes about finding their voice, and we talked about the creative process more generally. Where do ideas come from? How, how does a composer develop those ideas into finished pieces? We also talked about the art of craft beer and coffee. Uh, Nathan has worked in specialty coffee back when he lived in New York City. So we talked about the Kodawari vibe from the coffee world. Why do people pursue the perfect cup of coffee or the perfect espresso? And more generally, we talked about like what it means to pursue the ideal. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it for now. Hope you're having a good day and enjoy the episode. Boom. All right, Nathan Hudson, welcome to Exploring Kodawari. Hello. Yes. So um, happy to be here. Uh, I probably have introduced you already a little bit, but I wanted to start with the word Kodawari. Do you remember where we first learned that word? Do I remember where we first learned that word? Uh, no, I don't, but I want to be reminded. So please tell me. All right. So it was we. So first off, describe how we first met uh, in terms of like get both being into coffee and oh in grad yeah, school. wow. So it was um it was a wild time. So I move from Georgia up to New York for my graduate studies in music composition on Long Island, and uh you know I get up there, and you know I was I was this big shot down south with coffee. You know I used to. I used to sell coffee in my undergrad. I used to make French presses and pump them full of like those hazelnut syrups and sell them for like four bucks a cup. I thought I was like the coffee kingpin. So say I the name of your York coffee place I... from Georgia too, because it was you. You got <laughs> uh, yeah. We were called uh, Espresso Espressivo. <laughs> uh, we had some great uh, for a music geek that. Uh, and coffee geek that's just like <laughs> spot on yeah, it really is <laughs> it's a good name and we had some great artwork too done by victor Boyda. but anyways so i get to new york and i think okay well no one here knows about coffee because you know i didn't know anything about new york so i assume that they knew nothing about coffee so um i had an email sent out to everyone in the whole department of music so it was all students staff and faculty and basically, it was one of like the most snobby emails looking back on it now. I was just like, <laughs> yeah, hi. So like, I'm kind of into coffee and like, I doubt that you are. And so I want to educate you. I just like assumed that like everyone had no idea and they all just like drank Folgers and thought it was great. So I send this email. Well, I got some replies back. You got it's like two, when you right? You post something on so two, right? Yeah. It's like when you post something on social media and think, oh, no one's going to comment on this. Oh, they will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> someone will. There's going to be someone. And so uh, one of the replies was by this uh, one trumpet player named Chris Scanlon. And the other was from you, Luke Bauslav. And you were like, okay, yeah, I kind of know about coffee. And so I like held this like initial session where I talked about all the boring parts about coffee that really don't uh, add to to a person who's getting into it for the first time. It doesn't add into their enjoyment of the of the product. Um, but Luke saw through that. You saw through that. And so then, uh, through that, we kind of turned, um, our mutual love for coffee into this thing called Coffee Tuesday. Uh, 
which happened on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Uh, it just <laughs> it just recently ended. Actually, uh, I have killed the Facebook page officially. I saw that oh, Facebook notified me. It was like, and by the way, our Coffee Tuesday Facebook page for some reason <laughs> got mixed up with some cafe in Japan or somewhere. Yeah, like I think it was South Korea. <laughs> South Korea, because people kept checking in there and giving us ratings, and I'm like, damn, yeah, this like thing's taken off. We didn't do anything. Five star. I know, <laughs> I know, and and so uh, they kind of narrow the story a bit. We. We saved all the scientific coffee talk for back uh, in our apartments, which, uh, trust me, all that talk was still there and it was strong. But then we kind of ran this coffee business, you know, uh, we blew a few fuses, we made a little coin, oh God, we bought yeah. some we food with, into this, with, with our uh, money. So. In, the, in the floor. I remember one time I was heating <laughs> yeah. up water and I plugged in a, um, what is it called, the uh, power strip into the floor so we could yep. get like a couple kettles going the coffee grinder and all this. And I plugged into the floor and sparks started flying. I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Meanwhile, we're technically doing something that the campus would deem illegal. We're we're definitely selling coffee without any permit, right? I mean, we were calling it donations, I think, which was helpful um, legally. But we basically just had people that were chairs of the department that enjoyed our coffee, so they were (laughs) cool with it. And then then we even went, one step further because um a sort of after this um was done uh in our school music i actually began working in the coffee industry in manhattan and and one thing i learned was that um selling coffee has its kind of own licenses but if you add in food that adds in like a whole nother layer and so of course what had we done like the year before we added a cookie guy Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> so he would, and so he'd bring in his cookies. Uh, his name is Joey Bohegan. He's an excellent composer, and he made really bad grape jelly cookies, but everything else was great. Oh, yeah. he made amazing um, cookies. Like the sugar cookies were my favorite. Once cookies oh, yeah, were involved, good Bianca cookies. was like down. Like now I'm interested in, yeah. I'm going to live in the. <laughs> except for that one time. Except for. Uh, do y'all remember that time when we had a decorate your own cookie? Yes. Event, and, I do remember. And we, and we had peppermint icing, or was it strawberry icing, or something that was just bad? Um, I I don't remember the specific one, but I I remember a couple, I mean, various (laughs) things we did in that endeavor were disastrous. Um, (laughs) I I just love the idea that it was called, I don't know what we originally called it, Coffee Tuesdays, and then we changed it to- Yeah, I think it was just called Coffee Tuesdays. Like Coffee Thursdays. And then people started picking up on that name, but then we had to switch it to a Wednesday, and then it eventually ended back on a Tuesday, so- People would show up on random days, like I'm just in the student lounge, not having set up all my equipment, and they'd be like, "What's going on, coffee? coffee. You know, where's the coffee? You know, coffee boy." And not just students <laughs> either. You know, I mean, I mean, a few of our kind of you know, a tier patrons are people who are very respected musicians, and they would get you know like a little frustrated if it was you know like a Thursday, but we you know were just there two days ago. So it was it was it was a complicated issue. And then also, I recall there were a couple times where. As an organization, we hosted what's called a coffee cupping, which is like right, a right. coffee tasting, almost, almost, almost like a wine tasting, but for coffee. However, it's a little problematic to send an email to like an entire school music where you say like, "Hey, come to this cupping of this thing," because that kind of gets passed around and like it's really not a good look. Yeah, but it is the word that's <laughs> and associated it's not, with it's, it. And it's so not we, a popular term for coffee. Like no, people don't not. know that's what coffee tasting is called. Mm-hmm. Like, if you say, hey, come do a wine tasting, everybody knows what you mean. But mm-hmm. if you say do a coffee cupping, they're like, 
all of, I know what coffee is. What what are we cupping, cupping exactly? <laughs> yeah, and you know, it actually kind of has me think a little bit about how coffee companies um, are cupping their coffees nowadays because kind of the cupping process sort of necessitates a lot of people all tasting the same coffee by dipping their spoon into the same cup over and over multiple times with these violent inhalations as they think about it. I wonder how coffee companies... COVID. <laughs> yeah. No, like I'm, I'm curious if there's actually just kind of like one person whose kind of flavor profiles kind of, you know, like, like, uh, I'm sure they I have to adjust dominant it. force in these companies. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway, yeah, so, so th- that's how we met. We met <laughs> through this, 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 um, shared geekery of coffee. And, and I think that's how I met you guys too, pretty much. Right. Like I started like hanging out. Yeah. There. Maybe me and Yanka. Yanka is my fiance. If that's, this is your first episode. Um, but yeah. we, we probably met at this coffee Tuesday thing. Yeah. Cause you came in and you were like this cute little, like, hello, oh, I want coffee. That's <laughs> cute. Yeah. You were the coffee guy. You guys were the coffee guys. I mean, it was like, the place to be. I mean, it was, I mean, yeah. in that it music building, it wasn't the place to be like, if you have a, a lot of places to be, <laughs> but if you're stuck in graduate music school, it was the place to be. Um, but anyways, when we were hanging out and stuff, um, we got into coffee. We, we shared coffee knowledge and, um, I remember you sharing Peter Giuliano with me that just the whole especially coffee association of America and whatever. And he was on a Joe Rogan podcast where he mentioned this word Kodawari in the context of this guy, um, in Japan who owns bear pond espresso. And, and he was saying like this pursuit of perfection, like finding the perfect cup. And this guy doesn't open his shop if he doesn't like how the espresso is tasting that day. And he gets there two hours early. He's got the perfect classical music playing. Like, um, and that, that sort of spark of like chasing after a craft, attending to all the details, right? That's, that's what specialty yep. coffee is about. Okay. Yep. I remember that now. And, you know, I think, I think it's something that's really attractive, like about the word is that in coffee or in music or in, I mean, like a lot of pursuits, you kind of strive like for this perfection, but, but the part that's so attractive like the part that you lust for is the fact that you won't ever get there right yeah you know which i think is awesome it's cool and it's, it's all exciting. packed into one and word <laughs> yeah well yeah, so exactly. like what would be the perfect cup of coffee it's like you know and and it's it fits into the music um framework pretty well too it's like what would be the perfect piece or the perfect performance or whatever so um but something just to complement your personality you're very much like that about many different diverse things, right? So you're into coffee, yeah. you're into craft beer, you're obviously into music because that's your career. Um, did you just graduate, by the way? Are you officially a <laughs> doctor of music, whatever? In December, yep. In oh. December? In December. Well, Congrats. I'll, 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 you will graduate in December. Wait, he did no, graduate in December. No, I have graduated okay. yeah. well, in December. Congrats on that. Yeah, I'm done. Doctor, Doctor uh, Hudson. Dr. Hudson. <laughs> Um, That's right. <laughs> I have a rash I want to show you later if you can help me with that now that you're doctor. <laughs> I can, I can. <laughs> you can um, help me. And, yes, I can. Uh and one real quick note too. Um if 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 for any of our coffee loving listeners out there um are curious to read about this kind of pursuit of excellence as as it relates to coffee directly, there's a great book by Michelle Weissman called God in a Cup. Ah, uh, yes. I'm which, looking at it right which, now, yes. Isn't that over there? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Dude, it's right here I on our bookshelf. I lent that yeah. to you. <laughs> yeah. Is that my copy? Yeah, it's got to be your copy because I didn't Uh-oh. buy it. <laughs> Anyways, um, in this well, book, it's, well, it's a great book. And the basic idea is that there's, there's, um, 
a reporter, Michelle, who kind of follows along uh, a few coffee roasters who are involved with a cupping of this coffee that got extremely high marks in a coffee competition with kind of how coffee's graded on a scale. And, and there was one coffee that had a score that just nobody had ever seen. And the people who were there um, actually had these like godlike experiences with this coffee. But what's so interesting is it's, is, is the book is actually about how, how that experience for these roasters turned them into something other. And the book kind of actually follows each of their journeys after and how once they've tasted that cup of coffee, yeah, <laughs> that, that cup of coffee, it, it, it actually kind of is a negative and it kind of corrupts them in a way. And she highlights this in a very, um, meaningful and a powerful and a very eloquent way. And also, you know, the coffee that was there, um, that was scored so high, it didn't even get a hundred. It was like a 98 out of a hundred. Well, what so, would a hundred be? Uh, right. <laughs> I yeah, mean, no one problem knows. with scales, so, right. Um, anyways, but yeah, you're, you're like that with obviously, um, with your career in music, you're a go getter, you do things and you actually do them. Like you have ideas and then you do them. Um, you're into that. You're like that with video games, craft beer, yeah. I'm sure other things I don't even know that you're into, you know, you're pouring lattes with latte art in the morning, not just, you know, you know, even just doing a pour over. Right. So what motivates that energy? Cause it's probably a shared energy, whether it's in your main career or a side interest, right? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And it's something that I had to kind of come to terms with, especially in a financial way. Um, <laughs> because I, well, you no, can't keep buying because, beer all the time. <laughs> Well, yeah, because, you know, I, I drink coffee every day, often multiple times a day. I drink beer often. I wouldn't say every day, but I drink it often, right? I enjoy it. Um, I, I engage with music all the time. And so why settle, right? Why ever, why ever let yourself willingly have something that's not the best that it can be? However, about two or three years ago, I acquired a beer glass from a brewery called Tired Hands, which is in Pennsylvania. And the beer glass is very simple. And all it says uh, is, this is the best beer I've ever tasted on the glass. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it kind of had a shift for me in my perspective because, you know, I used to, I used to hunt these rare beer, these whales, we call them, right? I used to, I used to pay top dollar for these geisha coffees all the time, which was a, a poor financial choice. And, you know, I used to do all these things. And then I realized, you know, having those things is great because I want to always know that they exist. That's important for me, like to know that there's this something else above, which is exactly what this podcast's name reflects. However, there's that flip side that also is, is a part of that where understanding that there's this other that exists does not diminish what's in my glass. Right. And whatever I have in my glass at that moment is the best beer because I chose for it to be there. Or it's the best coffee because I chose for it to be in my cup. All these things. So it was, it was a real beautiful realization for me. It's, it's much uh, wiser that they put that slogan on the glass and not on their can of beer, which would be a bit arrogant. For sure. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But I know what you're saying. It's sort of like what Yanka and I love doing or, you know, love about meditation, which is it makes you not always chase after the future, the thing that's better in the future, but just, you know, be happy now, the sort of everything's perfect now idea. 
Um, yeah. But I think it's really interesting, though, like to always, always, always have that carrot. Like, do y'all think that kind of like having a carrot in front of you and knowing that there's something that you could be yeah. doing? Yes. Is that is that meaningful or is it not? You know? Oh, it absolutely is. I would say like I function like that more personally. Like I always have need to have a drive for something like in whatever I'm doing. So I definitely need that carrot. And then something about your personality that I really respect, I think, is that like you always like are really like determined if you're like doing something, you know, like a project, something I always like seen you just, you know, following that carrot like so, so you know, successfully. And I think, yeah, I function this a similar way. I don't know. I think the key is you just have to know it's a carrot. A lot of people are chasing a carrot and they don't realize it's a carrot on a stick. You just have to know it's on a stick that's attached to you to keep them <laughs> to drill the metaphor yeah. into the ground. And so, you know, I'm chasing this carrot because I need to move in a direction and I might as well move where the carrots are. <laughs> Am I yeah, ruining this metaphor? <laughs> no, I think, I think you're spot on. And it takes me back to some advice I was given when um, I transitioned into my doctoral candidacy. So about like a year and a half ago, I had my advisor offer me some advice, which uh, really That's good shaped thing for an advisor to of, do. <laughs> advice, <you. laughs> and um, it really shaped my kind of compositional and my musical ethos. And he said, "You have to identify what the ideal is. Right? Look at that carrot. Say, cool. Acknowledge that you're a carrot." What about you makes you an attractive carrot? Is it, is, it, is it just the fact that you're hanging on the stick? No, it's a lot more than that. And so breaking down what makes your ideal ideal then allows you to, in anything you do, say, how many boxes am I checking? And it begins to offer meaning to a lot more in our lives than you kind of think, right? So, for example, I'm a composer. I lived in New York for like seven years. And I'm 28. If I was going to be the it composer in New York, it would have happened a long time ago. So, I had to kind of say, okay, acknowledging that, what can I do? What kind of things can I make in my community? What kind of meaningful relationships can I have? What kind of art can I create to check enough boxes that I say, yeah, you know what? These things are still a part of that carrot. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really healthy way to think about success or about what it means to chase that carrot. Honestly, it's, it's, it's a lot more helpful to view it as like a pixelated carrot and take mm -hmm. pixels out and then make something new with it. You know? Right. Mm -hmm. The, um, the, the, I, the, the metaphor that we used in episode one of the podcast where we were just talking about the concept of Kodawari is, um, I don't know if you've heard this term circumnabulation. It's sort of like a, a way it's, it's a, a term that Carl Jung, the psychologist used to talk about self-development. And the idea would be like, instead of the metaphor of a carrot on a stick, you're in this like labyrinth maze and the center would be where the carrot is. And you're trying to get to the carrot, which would be like the ideal of something, whether that's the ideal piano playing, the ideal composition, the ideal human being. <laughs> and you find yourself aiming towards that center, but then the direction changes or reality forces you to change direction. And now you're going in a different place. And then you're, you hit a dead end. You have to turn around and go back. And you end up doing this circling of this ideal without ever actually penetrating to get to the center where the carrot is or whatever is in the center. And I think the idea is just like that the carrot or the center of this maze is is transcendent. It's pixelated because it's a little blurry because you don't actually fully understand it. 
Like, what is the ideal well, composition? Young. You know, <laughs> you can't. Well, Carl Young, I think, is a really interesting person to bring up because I read I read some of his work when I was doing um, my doctoral colloquium, which. Um, in the in the piece I was talking about, I was writing about a composer was using a lot of quotation, a lot of kind of like direct imitation of this sort of other composer's work, and Young talks about this as as a problem, and and talks about how if you if you are imitating someone, you sort of have to know that you're imitating them when you create something new. Mm-hmm. I forget all the specifics about what he was saying, but I can send you like a link to the article. It's, yeah, it's fascinating, that. but I think you're spot on. Yeah. So um, obviously in, in terms of specifically music, um, that's, that's your main carrot or, you know, maybe your main carrot is something more personal, but you know, mm-hmm. in terms of what you probably spend most of your time doing. Um, so can you just describe to the music muggles listening? We call non-musicians music muggles. <laughs> Because like if we were doing Listen, a, a using p- the word muggles kind of problematic now after recent statements, but I won't get into that. Oh, God. oh that is true. Um, <laughs> it's still a great word, and the alliteration alone uh, means I can't get rid of. <laughs> can't get rid of it. Fair enough. Um, so like uh, for, for I, I for non musicians, what, what can you describe like what it means to get a, a degree in composition? Like what what are you actually doing? Yeah, so it's it's a great question, right? And I I. I spend my summers often teaching high schoolers. I do a lot of marching band education. And when I'm talking with these young people, it's really interesting because they sometimes, even when they're in high school, a junior or a senior, they don't even know that you can go to undergraduate college for music. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did in high school. Yeah. And, and it's something that you think like, oh, it's not a real, you know, like career path. Like it's not listed on the pamphlet, like for the college I want to go to. But they exist. There are a lot of them. They are international. They're everywhere. Now, as a composer, it's a different kind of thing. And it was something that I had to grapple with as an an undergraduate. I play trumpet. That's my main instrument. And when I was looking for undergraduate schooling, I was hell-bent on going for composition. But I realized that there weren't many places that offered an undergraduate degree in composition. And it kind of bummed me out and it actually kind of had me think like, okay, is this something I really want to do? And then when I got to undergrad and I realized that a lot of programs um, only offer kind of like the higher, like the master's or a PhD in composition, although undergraduate degrees are becoming more common. But a reason why is because to be a composer, you kind of have to have experience being a performer often, right? Now, there, of course, are exceptions. There are very famous exceptions. Um, but... I think it was, it was for me very healthy. And so what, what kind of, um, a master's or a PhD in composition means is you're just learning how to the most successful presentation of yourself you have to uncover when you're in school. Because you have a freedom, you have a place to try things, to experiment with your voice compositionally, you get to make mistakes, you get to make, um, uh, you get to uncover discoveries about yourself, all these things. And it's about you trying to more successfully present yourself. You are not there to change your voice. That was like a 1960s, 1970s thing where everybody wanted people to have the same voice. You had the Columbia University compositional voice. You had the Juilliard compositional voice. You had the Michigan compositional voice. Thankfully, that is no longer a thing. And now... That seems um, like it's a lot of so faculty. not artistically true to force people into yeah. 
not sure. not you should be helping people discover their own voice not saying this yeah. is this mm-hmm. you know like the technique of like orchestration how do you write for different instruments like i understand that can be you know s- certain styles and schools of thought and whatnot but it seems to me like the artistic part like the deeper art of of be- composing music should be about like self-discovery like what feels whatever artistically true i don't know what that means ultimately it just means Obviously, it's not literally true, but it means some kind of honest expression of something. No, I think you're right, and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing about being in college for composition because it's it's sort of equal parts how to find your own voice, and also equal parts how to later, if slash when you are teaching, how can you help somebody else uncover their voice? Right? I'll use an example so. Our department chair at our college uh, that we all went to, his name is Perry Goldstein. He's an excellent composer. He's an excellent musician. He did his doctorate at Columbia University back in the 70s when the way that he writes music now, which is tonal, it's playful, it's lively, would have been very frowned upon. And his teacher, which uh, well, I can say his name, Mario Davidovsky, okay? His name... Uh, kind of rings true with this kind of like hyper serial, hyper controlled music. And while, um, by the way, for for non-musicians, this, the serial music is like, like where every detail is, is accounted for in like a calculated way. Not so much uh, what we think of, what you might think of as like classical orchestral music or movie scores where it's about the effect or the affect, you know? Yep. And so, and so for Perry, when, when he was there, which, you know, that is a very prestigious institution to have gone to. He knew he wanted to get his degree from there. So he had to fit a mold. But the moment he was done, he went back to how, how he wanted to write. And he recounted to me one time in a lesson that he had a call from, from his past teacher. And he said, oh, Perry, are you still writing that tonal music? And he's like, yeah, I am. <laughs> and that's really interesting, right? And thankfully, it's not really that way anymore. Um, and so it's just really interesting because composition in college is about each person uncovering the most successful way to present themselves and how to create something that can meaningfully um, explain that or show that to a group of either performers or an audience member, uh, depending on the on the kind of music or the idiom. So, um, yeah, that's all so it's, I've, it's, I've it's, got to uh, say about that. You know, like for for uh, us performing musicians, our our day to day practicing is like maintaining certain technical skills on the one front, and then on the more spiritual front, like maintaining inspiration and why we're doing it, why are we practicing three hours a day kind of thing. Is there like the technical aspect to composition where you have to keep your skills sharp? Is there any like daily routine stuff that you do? Like, you know, mm-hmm. like voice leading exercise or is that is that more like once you have it, you have it? Yeah, so I kind of have a multi-pronged answer to that. So Multi-pronged, woo! <laughs> so especially during this time of isolation, that's been a big problem for a lot of composers because we kind of um, often say that we need external stimuli to then give us something that we can respond to musically. Well, when you're in isolation, that kind of gets cut off. And so for a lot of composers, uh, you have seen them post on social media or they've written really eloquently about um, this kind of block. And it's something that I think is completely healthy. However, 
there are things I think that one can do if you are in isolation to kind of still keep the creative process going. And I think that there has to be a balance between acknowledging that it's not the best time to get stimuli, but also saying, taking the stimuli I have, what can I do with it? And so some things that I found (coughs) that work for me are, I love revisiting old pieces, right? Mm. Because um, as a composer, oftentimes I write when I'm paid to write. And that sounds kind of bad, but it's, it's, it's the reality about it. Your career. And so when I'm not paid to write, yeah. And when I'm not paid to write, how do I keep writing? And so I love to go back and look at old pieces and say, you know what? I'm going to go back and hear this piece I wrote like eight years ago and think, okay, I'm going to find one bar. I'm going to make some decisions as a composer. I love making decisions. That's like a big part about being a composer. I'm like, I'm going to go back and make some decisions about one bar and see what that does to the piece. See if that necessitates me to make any other choices later on. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But just kind of triggering that part of my brain and my creative process is enough on a day where I feel kind of bogged down by not having those external stimuli to at least feel... Um, like I made a connection in my brain, right? So that's something that is really healthy for me too. Listening to music is really interesting, right? Because as a composer and as a performer or as a musicologist, someone who kind of studies music as a career, like the really high academic side, um, listening to music is something that's kind of necessary, right? It It's paramount. However, For myself as a composer, whenever I hear a piece of music or I watch a movie that has music or I'm in the car and I hear something on the radio, oftentimes it's sort of like 40%, okay, here's what I like about that. And then it's 60%, here's what I would change about it if I could. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting, right? That's almost your technique practice, right? Yeah. Hmm. And, and I often tell young students like, Hey, have you ever played a piece in band class or an orchestra class or sang a song in choir that you're like, wow, I hate this so much. And they're like, Oh yeah, for sure. They're like, yeah, most of everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I asked them like, okay, cool. What about it? Didn't you like? And they're like, Oh, well, I thought that the ending sucked. And I'm like, cool. Let's talk about that. Why, why was it not something that you engaged with? We begin to break it down. And then once we have these ideas, I say, cool, let's try to make it a better ending. And that right there is a great way to introduce young people into composition. And it's a great way for people who are professionals in the field to kind of stay active in the creative process, right? Yeah, it gets their ears turning in that way. Yeah, yeah. And I think that for me, it has been really helpful during this time because there's not those external stimuli. What kind and, of, what know, do you mean I by external one, stimuli? Give me some examples of what you would normally be, you know, you mean like the things that spark your creative juices kind of vibe? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not around people. I'm not having conversations. I'm not out there like teaching in person. I'm not out there eating great food. Mm-hmm. I'm not out there seeing amazing sights. Mm-hmm. All these things random people give. at breweries or right. whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a big problem for composers. And so those few things I found are helpful during a time like this to um, find a way to always be moving forward. I'm also very thankful here to have a piano where I exist, um, but also I do it on my trumpet or just anything. I love just making sound, you know. Yeah. I'll be making my coffee in the morning, and all of a sudden I'll kind of take my coffee cup and I'll accidentally with, you know, my little coffee stick go... 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I found a, a random old Snapchat. Snapchat will um, alert me like randomly, be like, here's a video from three years ago today or something. And one of them was me in my old house. Yanka was there and you were there. And I don't know if you remember this, but my fridge had some glass bottles on top of it. And the vibration of yeah. the fridge was vibrating the glass bottles together in such a way that it was creating like um, a sort of beat. And then we started adding to that beat on the table. And like for at least 20 seconds, it was pretty dope. Um, yeah, I'll send you, know, you the I Snapchat. Think... You would find it funny. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, please do. That's funny. Um, and building awareness for things like that that just kind of happen on accident in your world, I think, is really precious. You yeah. know, it's something that that I think kind of building an awareness for is really key. I mean, that's that's a big thing. Like whenever I'm teaching young students about, you know, singing or about how to hear music, it's 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 honestly a lot more about building awareness in these young people and also as professionals is kind of building awareness for this world around us because it's pretty noisy. Mm -hmm. And so we like had to kind of begin to discern and filter. Um, and I think uh, I love the, the mental model of, of having, you know, signal versus noise because the world is mostly noise. And if you try to listen to all of it, you'll just be paralyzed and you can't write music or write a book or, get in that creative space even as performers we're not writing music but we're creating we're part of the process in some way well i think i mean i think you are you know like writing music in a sense i mean um one like you both have have i know improvised because i have been there with you when you've done it but two i mean even think about interpretation like is that a is that a version of of composition, you no. think, you know, like Yanka, like I'm curious, like when you play, like when you play like the Brahms violin concerto, like, mm -hmm. do you feel like you're making some choices that, you know, of course, Brahms, like would never have, have thought about, but, mm -hmm. but your kind of active role in that, I think makes you a really interesting agent in the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the more I age, I think the more I feel like I'm making more of those decisions, like less in a subconscious way like i used to be like oh this sounds cool so let me just do this little thing here but now i try to be more like okay like what would this composer want like what kind of a like what what is it that i should kind of take from here and then you know just add my own interpretation and i think in a way that's i guess composing not necessarily composing but like yeah, it's kind of a gray area right it's like yeah. a, it's like a halocline in the in the process but i think it's something that, you know, I I hope that a a lot of performers don't kind of feel like they're not actively involved in that. I, I, that's kind of one thing that's like so beautiful about like electronic music is like often people uh, who write pieces for kind of like acoustic instruments with with electronics, you know, the person who's just kind of hitting the buttons on 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 the sound system is considered equal like to the performer is often considered equal like to what the composer is doing. So I think it's a really interesting kind of Venn diagram yeah. there. I, I, I had jotted down this, <clears throat> I remember reading something in, in grad school. So I had jotted down this question uh, to ask you anyways about like what we just said, you know, objectivity and subjectivity in music. And I'm forgetting the name of the, the paper, but I sort of reread, um, I found on my Google Drive, um, a sort of review homework assignment from grad school. I, I, it was about a Brahms intermezzo, I want to say. But it was this debate about, like, is music objectively there? And my job is to play what you wrote as the composer? Or are we collaborating in a, a dual, you know, composition kind of thing? And people land on different sides of that. But it sounds like you're landing on more of the, we're both, you know, 
participating and collaborating side of it. Yeah, I think I do. And it's really interesting because I spoke earlier about how much I love being able to make choices. And I do because I'm a composer and I'm very arrogant because I'm a composer. And I do kind of love being I mean, able you have to, to make be, right? decisions. <laughs> sure. I mean, but, at you least know. you're self-aware about it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but for me, um, after I make the choices, that's like the step one of choices, right? That's That's... That's like the first layer of my tiramisu. I kind of need to have collaboration to then make the other layers, right? I, I'll draw like another, um, a parallel back to coffee. It's like, I loved, I loved working in coffee in New York because I love the product. But what I loved more was being able to make choices about a product, sharing that with somebody and having that act as a catalyst for conversation. Mm -hmm. Either with me, with someone else, maybe they say, oh, you know, I don't like that drink. Or in music, oh, you know, I kind of like this, but like, I don't really like that bar. Sometimes I'll say, well, okay, you know, I kind of like that bar. But oftentimes I'll say, cool, I want to know why you don't like that bar. I want to kind of talk about this. Because I, I, I very quickly had to break my ego in composition. Because what I found is that while it's going to always be present in some sense, because um, I'm the author of something it's it's kind of always living, right? It's like if if I'm able to go back and look at my old catalog and make choices about something to change, why can't a person who's going to be actually playing that music and bringing it to life on a stage have an active role? Yeah, you know. And I think it it's just a really healthy part of the creative process, and 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 it's something that I feel like a lot of people want but don't actively engage with because they're scared of kind of overstepping a line there's no line they're scared of making you know? decisions right i mean so right. when you make and a decision you put yourself out there and you say this is when you say make a decision by the way i think another way to phrase that would be to solve a problem of some kind yeah absolutely. and you put yourself out there when you solve a problem in your way and you go you know here's my solution and then the world can now judge it but as a composer i you probably have to just you know just let go of caring. You know, you, mm -hmm. once you decide, it's like, I decided, now I move forward. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I recall recently, I, I had a commission from this school here in Georgia called the Woodward Academy for a piece for middle school band, uh, which is an, an idiom that's kind of famous for having really awful music. A lot of really <laughs> awful music. You, do you and mean so, like performances because they're in middle school or even the content of the music is awful? <laughs> The content of the music. Yeah. Um, and so I tried to actively address this problem. So I spoke heavily with the director, who's a good friend of mine, who commissioned me. And I said, hey, I want to find a way so that your students feel like they're having an active role in this. And so what I did was I went to go visit with his students about four times until I delivered the final piece. Each time I would bring a snippet, maybe 16 measures, maybe half the piece, whatever it was. And I just kind of had them play it. And I wouldn't tell them anything. I would just say, hey, who has any thoughts on this? And of course, you'll, you know, have, have the wise cracks in the back who were like, oh, it needs more conga drums, you know, like whatever it yeah. is. But every now and then you'll, you know, have somebody who's like, well, I kind of like this ending, but I wonder if like maybe, you know, like the French horn part was like a little higher. And I'm like, cool, let's experiment with that. And we try it and I like it. And I'm like, cool. That's a great idea. It's now in the piece. Yeah. And these 
these young people are like, wait, hang on, I get to have a part in this, but like, like you're the composer, you're the one being paid for it, you know, like for the piece. And I'm like, right. And you're the collaborator. So you are equally as important, if not more so than what I'm giving you to perform. I remember you being know? in and, middle school and high school yeah. and, and the whole idea of how a piece was written was such a mystery that if somebody had done that to me and said like, yeah, we could put an F sharp up there. I'm like, you can just do that. <laughs> I thought there was some like rule book that, that you, you know, but it, it really is. It's just putting, you can show kids that it's just putting notes down on a page in a certain way. Yeah. And no offense. And you know, it, well, <laughs> I mean, what, what do we do? We just but, make know, sounds, we make vibrations in the air in a certain way. Right. Right. But I think, I think, it goes even more past that. It's like, you know, when, um, like in this piece, for example, there was like a, there was like an effect at the end where I like had the students kind of sing this chord, like using their voice and they kind of transition like into playing. And, um, a few of them had this idea to kind of have it, um, kind of get like, uh, um, almost like peppered into the ensemble, like the playing, you know, almost like you're like poking holes into like a piece of paper that has light coming through and have that kind of become this playing. And I, I didn't really like that I- idea personally, but this band wanted it so bad that I was like, you know what? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Because you're feeling proud and happy with, with your part of this process completely negates whether I thought it was a good or a bad choice. It makes the piece and the process better. Mm-hmm. And so it was a good choice, you know? Yeah. I wonder if Yanka has cool. any concept of sound for what middle school band is. Because <laughs> I mean, obviously we talk about that. We were in middle school bands and we really. teach the, that age of <laughs> students and we just know what, what that, I'm just going to say mean, what it is. It's like the, it, it can be like some of the most awful sounds you could I, I imagine. No, I didn't grow up here. I didn't go to school here, so I have no idea. But I, I have a question um, generally about education, like of um, composition. I was just curious, like if um, at what point, like if undergrad degree is more designed to be like, okay, so you need to write in various styles that existed, like expressionist music or like, you know, serialist, like whatever. And then grad school is designed more like finding your own voice or like at any point do you have to write in any specific style as a requirement i was just curious yeah so i think that's probably true for a lot of musical disciplines like the undergrad is is like the learning how and the grad school is learning like why and what next right Mm -hmm. there's there's that really famous quote from um lee hyla who used to teach at Northwestern University, he he died a few years back, but he has this quote where he says, if anything goes, then nothing matters, right? And so I think as as a young person in composition or on trumpet or on violin, anything, at least for me, um, you know, undergrad was a lot more just kind of filling in some gaps I did not have filled. There was some stuff I didn't know. There are some things I just couldn't do on the trumpet or things I didn't know about music or things I didn't know were even possible about composition. And when I kind of had the road like initially paved, grad school was like, okay, let's choose our signs. Let's choose what color paint you want to, you know, have on your road. Let's mm-hmm. choose all these other things. So I definitely think um, of your spot on there, Yanka. Mm-hmm. With, with I was just curious kind of if anyone's like that. making you compose in a specific style that you absolutely dislike. Like, is, is that one of your requirements and you have to um, fulfill at any point? So that was, yeah, that was more of like an undergraduate thing. And it was, uh, it was, it was also not really 
as a composer, it happened often in my music theory courses. Right, like the same uh, courses we had to take with voice leading. Yeah, you know, like you're told like to write a song in the style of Debussy, or you're told to write like a like a piano invention in the style of Bach, or like a string quartet in the style of Schoenberg. But just like these little short exercises to kind of make sure that you can apply the concepts you're learning in the course into some kind of practical understanding, which I think it's is beneficial as a composer or an educator or a performer or a musicologist. Um, one thing though, that was really interesting for me that I had happen on my senior year of my undergraduate studies um, was when I had decided to go to grad school for composition, which I almost didn't. Uh, I applied almost for trumpet and I, I did apply for a few schools for trumpet, but I, I didn't pursue it was my teacher asked me to, take um, a substantial portion of the first movement of Mahler's second symphony, Gustav Mahler's second symphony. And what he told me to do was to write it out by hand, note for note. Uh, why? Just and for I was the like, reason why? of this assignment. And I was like, why the heck would I do that? That yeah. sounds like an awful way to spend like a few weeks. And it was really interesting actually, because it's, in the moment, I was so furious. I was like, I go home every night. I spend like an hour doing like six bars of just like straight. Are you copying this like visually or transcribing it like yep. from audio? I visually. Okay, visually. Yeah. I was that like, would have been hey, impossible. Dude. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it was. It was. It was actually really fascinating. Like to kind of feel what it might have felt like to write down a part of this kind of monumental symphony myself, mm-hmm. even though I didn't. I didn't have any active agency in its conception writing it down gave me this kind of urgency over the music and i would kind of find myself having this really interesting parallel with because you know i know how that piece goes and and there are times when it's getting more intense more intense and i'm finding my hands shaking more and more as i'm going and i'm like whoa i'm just literally just like writing down whole notes here like mm-hmm. like like why is this impacting me and it led to a few very interesting discussions with my uh, old comp professor. His name was Fred Cohen. He's now the department chair at San Jose State University in California. Nice. I like that idea. It reminded me when you were saying that, um, you know, the writer Neil Gaiman, mm-hmm. he was on, I think it was Tim Ferriss's podcast, and he was talking about ha- his writing process and how he has to use a pen on paper. And he has a very, very specific type of pen, like a fountain pen that he uses. And he takes these fountain pens to, there's a fountain pen hospital in New York, like, it's, you know, it's a repair shop for these fountain pens that are like 150 bucks. But he said the way it just slides across the paper and becomes words. Imagine like, um, you know, the, the, um, the magic uh, diary from Harry Potter, the way the writing just appears there. Like mm-hmm. he's like, it, it feels just like this. It slides across the page with it, like an ice skater kind Another of thing. Another Harry Potter reference. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're on HBO. We've been watching them. So, you know. <laughs> No, but I think you're right, though. I, I mean, there's there's something about kind of like the physical process of, you know, of notating. I mean, I myself, I I don't write by hand often. I have I've got probably four or five pieces that I have done that way. But um, it's really beautiful, and it's and more, the friends you feel I more have of a connection it's for some reason, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel the same. Weirdly enough, like as a performer, I occasionally will practice things off of a computer screen or an iPad or something. And I always feel more connected to the music when it's like an original copy in a book, not even a photocopy. Mm. 
like for for some reason like the flimsy like photocopy paper that can just like blow off your stand is it, there, there's something more serious in, in how I engage with music when it's in like, you know, a, an official published book with like a, a real binding and the, the pages are not like that white photocopy color that I, if something like triggers in me, like, Oh, this is a, a more serious endeavor. I, it, it's something I can't quite explain it, but. Well, and I kind of up the stakes. Yeah. Right? It feels because, like, because like if you want to change a note, you have to get your eraser. You have to separately get your eraser or your whiteout. And you have to actively erase a note from a piece of paper. Whereas on a computer screen, you know, you can hit like 19 notes and try them in a matter of like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, you know. And like I kind of draw some some parallels here to like other um, other professions. And I'm sure Yonka like can also kind of relate to this. It's like, you know, like uh, like a baker. If they want to change a recipe... They won't even know if they messed up something until it comes out of the oven. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. So and it's, it's, it's a lot like that kind of writing music by hand sometimes, like, especially if you're not kind of at a piano, like playing through it, which is an important part of the process for some people. And, too, and but, so you're mm-hmm. comparing that um, you mean to the instant replay that you're able to do when you're composing on yeah. a computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, it's why doing something by hand is a really beneficial you know, like you know what else it does? Or, it it, it yeah. slows you down. I bet you have to compose much slower by hand, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And something yeah, about um, slowing down changes what you create, right? Um, it's 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 an- another limitation that that kind of y- your idea can go forward in brain world, but it's limited by this. It's as if you have a fast computer, but your USB cable is from like two thousand one, and it's just like the data transfer is slowed down. There's a, there's a, a sort of um, pinch in your data transfer wire that it can't flow faster from hand to paper, even if the idea is running crazy in mm-hmm. your mind. Yeah. You must be frustrated. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious, Yanka, like for you, um, let's say like you're learning like a new piece on your violin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it's like a similar process if you don't have any kind of previous knowledge of the work or if you know a composer like did not provide you with like a midi rendering if you just have notes on a page and you're told to like interpret it Mm -hmm. um what's that kind of like initial process of kind of exploration like for you because it's not unlike actually writing the notes on a page for the first time it's it's a lot like a performer looking at the notes for the first time it's like a very similar process like what's that like for you it is um it's very frustrating i think because like um it i actually remembered um this thing like a couple of years ago i had to play this paul ruder's string quartet that was only premiered once ever and i was supposed to do the we were supposed to do the um american premiere of it which has never happened hilariously but um at tanglewood anyway and i received the music there was no recording of it nothing and it was just like the most complicated like rhythmically just like the lots of extended techniques and everything from the outside it looked like she was like participating in like navy seal training like because i I would go up to visit her or facetime whatever (laughs) because she was up at this festival for the whole summer and you would get home and just be like it's fucked it's fucked yeah it's (laughs) never gonna happen like this is never happening yeah so i mean it is really really frustrating to put something together especially okay the reason why it never happened is because the score was filled with all kinds of mistakes we couldn't even put it together like it was very sloppily written which is another problem then we reached out to the composer and he like 
I, I think like edited the score and everything but yeah it gets quite frustrating i think did like, one of the so performers like right involved have a mental breakdown and they had to cancel it or yeah, something yeah that's, that's, that's the then, ending of yeah, that story because exactly, we couldn't figure so like out right there, like how to put it together yeah but are there any accounts yanka of like the you know like like the early great violinists who have had to premiere works obviously like without hearing them because it didn't exist you know like 20 years ago yeah. are there any people who who wrote about what that process was like like who said hey i just got this concerto from like whoever and like here's what i think about it uh-huh interesting well i think they usually closely worked with the composer which makes it quite easy and you can just have a dialogue about how it's supposed to sound like but when the, the composer's not around you're completely alone and you have no idea what to do about it and if, especially if the music is not like the score is not as like instructive to you about what to do then you put your own interpretation and there's always this doubt like you never know if you're doing the right thing if like that's what the person envisions it's very difficult like Ostrak, for instance prepare um, premiered the Shostakovich concerto and I know they worked very closely so like when you're listening to that recording you know that's what Shostakovich wanted so because like they were just like talking about it and I know he even like changed the passage because he was like I'm so tired just like the beginning of the fourth moment he's like I'm tired like get this out of my part just give it to the winds and stuff like that like they were that closely working that it was like a both um, kind of process that worked both ways that were giving each other talk about collaboration like we were saying before in that kind of thing where someone's like literally having a not just interpretive you know changing having an interpretation but literally in dialogue with the composer to say yo this yeah. this ain't cool this like is not if somebody happening. wrote something yeah. for a trumpet i'm like uh if you want me to play it it's not going to happen there might be someone out there that can do it almost definitely there is but i can tell you 70 percent of trumpet players won't be able to play this without getting tired or whatever the context well, is well now for you luke i'm a little curious um in your in your time working on the baroque trumpet repertoire um that was a bit different right because the composers were sort of writing something but there was kind of this sort of understood universal style so much information like, was that, left out of the music that yeah. mm -hmm. that people of that time would just know for example, I, I say this to my beginning piano students when I'm when they're first learning about harmony, like and 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 talking about like try in, in without going into music theory, get you know, talking about how they had figured basses, right? So not all the note I was just trying to explain to them like not all the notes were written. And the keyboard player has a lot of say in how those harmonies are going to be expressed, much like a jazz pianist um can not necessarily um, compose their own piece, but the interpretive freedom is like way more than what we think of normally as like the performer is the robot who plays what's on the page. So do you think that like that, um, I'm curious, like if you think that's a benefit that was sort of lost when kind of like the universal interpretation expectations sort of, uh, morphed, or do you think that it's just different? now you know like in your experience playing both you know like you play broke and, and contemporary yeah i stuff. think in like, the broke you... world there's just a lot more of that like i'm playing the music it i'm trying to educate myself as to the style and what it would be like and all of that but but there's this like understood freedom of like interpretation um have you read uh the uh music music as speech what's the um forget the full title of that book 
Um, well, I know what you're talking about, but I can't recall. Yeah, so towards the beginning of that book, he's just talking about how much music performance and pedagogy changed once high quality recordings became a thing and and so much more emphasis was put on perfection and technical you know details and evenness of sound and perfect articulation all the all the skills involved to be perfect that the risk risk taking and the um e- e- expressivity is just inherently lower today than it was when people weren't so concerned with perfection and were more concerned with artistic expression, taking risks and all that. That's really fascinating. I think, I mean, what I kind of have, have, um, have gathered like from, from, from hearing you and Yanka just speak about that is that in the Baroque era, you know, like you might say that it was, it was, um, that's by the way, people, that's like the 16, 1700s ish Mm -hmm. dates approximate. Uh, the performer's urgency and wow factor was kind of more in the presentation. And then now it's a lot more in the conception of works, you know, which is really interesting. Like, I think, you know, Yanka, like you were saying, you know, like this great violinist worked with a composer, but you know, like back then, like in the Baroque era, you might hear a trumpet player play something by, you know, Handel or something and say, wow, I have never heard someone add these other things like what this person did. That's yeah. fascinating, but now you won't really hear anything added into the Shostakovich concerto, you that know, which is, is interesting. True. Yeah, um, there's so much more. So room I don't know. It's for yeah, it's interpretation yeah, the, the, in Baroque. The, that's for sure. Yeah, um, the 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 in, in, similar to in jazz, where there's just an assumed level of improvisation that will happen. Jazz and Baroque music ha- share a lot of similarities in that in in that respect. Um, I do have one other question to ask you, like a concept area before we wrap up here, which is. How do you think about the idea of having a standard in an artistic field such as music? And my prompt, I, w- I want to tell a quick story. Maybe you know about this thing, but my prompt for it is, do you know about, um, let's see, I wrote down the guy's name. Um, right. Okay. So in December, 2019, this was spreading around social media and I got curious enough to look into it. Um, <clears throat> so do you know about the banana taped to a wall? art piece <laughs> i do okay so um the the guy who made that art piece he's this italian guy named Maurizio catalan um and it's a it's a he's he does a lot of comedy type art pieces and this this i think this piece is literally called the comedian um it's literally just a banana duct taped to a white background and it sold for one hundred twenty thousand dollars. And so on my, I'm, I'm of two minds towards this, right? Um, he, he, by the way, he also has another art piece, which is um, a toilet that is made of pure gold, 18 karat gold, and it's worth $8 million. So it's, he's just kind of, you know, there's a, there's a point going on there. Um, but here's a little bit more from this story. So it was on display in an art exhibit in Miami and it, and because the people who bought it for $120,000 decided to to show it to the public. This New York-based performance artist guy named Datuna um, pulled a stunt and has his friend videotape it um, on his phone on Instagram Live. And he just went up to the banana on the wall, grabbed it off, and ate it. <laughs> and that became his art piece. 
And the caption for that video um, said, I love Maurizio Catalan's artwork. I really love this installation. It's very delicious. And I just thought, now I've spent 15 minutes reading and thinking about art. And maybe that was the whole point, right? <laughs> so even a banana taped to a wall, like it, I ended up, I, I started this thing being like, people are fucking crazy. How are they calling this art? How is it worth that much? But then like the people who spoke about it more seriously were like, that was the whole point of it is to question what is art. You know, Andy Warhol has those paintings that are just like a bunch of Campbell's soup cans, like all oh. stitched together, you know? Do you know his like defense on why he painted that? Like No. What? Andy he, he Warhol's you mean? Yeah. Oh no, no. He just he just says, like, I, I just love soup. I have it every day. That's why I wanted to do it. <laughs> I love that. Like yeah, I'll I'll link this in the episode notes, but yeah, the, it, it literally it's just all the, the, I think it's 20, 32 different flavors or whatever. Yeah. How, at the time he made it, Campbell's Soup had all these different flavors. And he just put like a very, you know, certainly put together like of each of these soup soup flavors. And the explanation was, that's amazing. Like, I just love soup. You know, when you hear like that kind of uh, reasoning, you just go, maybe that is art then, right? Like there's something about like, it's just pure instinct you know, I don't know. So, anyways, how do you? That's my that's my framing, like lobbing yeah. the ball to you. How how do you apply that kind of thinking to music and defining what is good, what is, you know, high quality music versus like, you know, shit music, and who gets to decide? Also, like composing. Yeah. Like, where do you draw the line? Like, what? How absurd can you get? Because sometimes I've seen absurd stuff that maybe I was being. That unfair. performers roll their eyes at. Yes, yeah. like maybe I was being very unfair. Maybe there was something deep going on that I wasn't getting. But like, do you also get the same feeling? Sometimes I'm curious. Do you ever? Do you ever get no, the feeling yeah. you're hearing something and you're calling bullshit on it? Yeah. You know. Wow, there's like nine questions here. Okay, so um, it is it is interesting, right? Because if you if you look at the banana tape to a wall, that had value because we said it had value, mm -hmm. right? If you look at you know. At the craft beer industry, beer has value because other people say that it has value. If you look at the coffee industry, the coffee that's featured in that book has value because someone else said it had value. That's kind of the first level if you want to think about how you can right. gauge the actual value. The negotiation of value between people. Yeah. Because, because you then have to go back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast where if I put a beer that's not highly valued by the community into my glass that says, this is the best beer I've ever had, that changes things, mm -hmm. right? And so I think it's a really fascinating thing to explore because you you see a lot in composers, you know, how they talk about sort of the worth of their music or kind of what they think of as good or bad or composers who pull things from their catalog um, because they don't think it kind of fits their current language or whatever it might be. Or you read like a New York Times review of, of a piece of music and you're like, how is this person reviewing this? And it's really interesting because there's a couple of factors at play. I think... Um, there's inherently this kind of dialogue, which we've kind of been talking about this whole podcast about the composer performer audience kind of conversation that's always happening. And there are sort of immediate responses that are um, able to be seen by both the performers and the audience or a reviewer where they can gauge somebody's reaction. So let's say they were to hear a piece and then the audience goes like, ugh, and disgust at a moment. That's going to be something that a reviewer has to figure out why that happened. Um, 
I think that when it comes to identifying whether or not a piece is good, there's a couple factors because I, I used to have this mindset that there are bad pieces of music. Mm-hmm. I used to think that way. I used to think like, mm, you know, there's just cats who like aren't that good at writing music. Well, and they can't even hold a pen. So yeah. <laughs> oh my oh God. God. I'm going to edit that out. Please <laughs> edit that out. I was going to say that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and it bothered me for a long time because I was saying these things as someone who, I mean, even though I've had like a decently successful career since that point, I was saying those things from the perspective of someone who hadn't had a career and who hadn't really won anything and who hadn't had these big commissions and who hadn't been on the front page of a magazine with a review. And so I had to take a step back and kind of analyze why I thought that. I, I, had, to, I had to kind of tell myself, why do I think that this person is not writing good music? And it boils down a lot of times to what is different, what kind of actively moves us as, as, as a listener in the process. Now, of course, there are these kind of um, uh, more surface level uh things like you know is there an issue with how their score looks or like is their voicing wrong or is there something like easy to fix technically like yeah you know like is there is there voicing you know in a range that's not going to be successful on like this instrument but music is a lot more than that music is a lot more than just what's on a page right it's 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 about the active experience of listening to this music letting it come into your body in a given place and seeing how you respond to it. So I've kind of taken the idea that there might be pieces of music that I don't enjoy listening to as much, but I have to concede the fact that they're a part of the fabric. Right. 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 They're there. The pieces you like wouldn't be that the pieces you like without contrast to the pieces you don't like you know they're part of the the whole big picture and if when i go back to like the banana on the wall with kind of how that value is given you know like in composition it's so interesting like like a composer writes something gives it to a jury or a reviewer or an audience then that person literally has no more power over how that is perceived you know Mm -hmm. um and it's it's fascinating um, but then, you know, let's take a look at, at, at other great artists. You know, I'll use Jackson Pollock as an example. I love Jackson Pollock's works. And if I think about them too long, I begin to spiral about why I love Jackson Pollock's artwork mm-hmm. or why I love Basquiat's artwork. And I don't know. There are people who are staunch critics of Pollock and Basquiat because they think, oh, it looks like, you know, like a third grader threw paint at a wall or looks like a first grader drew a dinosaur, but it's a lot more than that. Right. It's, it's about how a given piece of art or music or, or anything is perceived in that moment, which to kind of tie this whole thing up with a bow, it's back to the coffee shop. I, you know, willingly had pulled shots of espresso for customers that I knew weren't exactly in the parameters I wanted. And when I poured them a drink, they loved it all the same mm-hmm. because the process of me sharing something with them was a lot more important than what was in the cup. 
Oh, I really like this advice, actually. Yeah. Because, like, as you know, performers... Same with performers, yeah, yeah. We sometimes have a hard time seeing that, I guess, as performance. Well, we see the technical details yeah. as, like, was that a successful performance? Whereas, I think if you're just, like, spiritually going for it, people hear that. They don't hear a missed note here or a scraped note there. They feel what your intention was. I think yeah, it, it's come you know, down to the feeling part. It's not intellectual as much as it is instinctual and feeling. And music criticism is something that um, I have not really studied. I mean, I have been on the side of being a critic, but not knowing why I have been. And it's something that I think like when you read the great music critics, there actually is something there to kind of take away from. And it's a certain kind of sort of experience and appreciation for the art. But um, you know, I should read up more about that kind of as a process because it's an important part of our field and it's a part that can make or break people's careers. And it's something that I think needs to be addressed, you know, because yeah. it's something that does have a huge profound impact in, in terms of kind of visibility or just like financial compensation. Like if you win an award or something because your piece was chosen, all these different things, um, yeah, this yeah, could I be mean, a whole a whole episode topic on it on its own. Maybe mm -hmm. we'll have you back in the future to talk about that because there are a lot lots of um, you know yeah. directions it can go in. But let's end with a speed round. Ready for like? <laughs> so here's how the speed round works. Um, you can say pass on any question you don't want to answer. Nothing pops into your head. You don't actually have to answer in ten seconds. You could take ten minutes theoretically, but like there's just like four <laughs> or five questions to to finish us up. And, you know, it's, I'm calling it speed round, even though you don't have to force yourself to be speedy, necessarily. All right, I'm ready. All right, mm -hmm. favorite composer? Uh, favorite composer. Ooh. Um, Anders Hilborg. Huh. That's not... I, 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 didn't, uh, I didn't know who you were going to say, but um, I thought you might say either Mahler or Bach. Or Strauss. I mean, Bach was was the first person who popped into my head, but then I was like, "Listen, I'm, you're like, like that's too obvious." Like, I can't say I Bach. Something cooler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but Bach. I mean, I mean, you know, Bach like is definitely. I mean, uh, the first person who, who who came to mind, and then Beethoven, of course, and then Hilborg, and then Ives is probably fourth. Then, um, but I mean, that's also not like including, you know, songwriters or hip hop artists as composers, which if, if, if that was the game, it'd be a whole different answer. Fair enough. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> What's, um, something you believe now that you did not believe 10 years ago and then vice versa? What did you believe 10 years ago that you no longer believe now? <laughs> that was like a pretzel question. It, it, <laughs> it, it makes your brain go like, oh shit. <laughs> Um, I believe that winning competitions does not matter, mm -hmm. which I used to think it did because that's kind of how I gauge my self-worth. Like I told you being in New York, I was kind of bummed out cause I wasn't winning these things. And then I realized that that's not how I define myself. Mm -hmm. And so now I've realized that that's not important. And then something that. <laughs> Reverse that, it. Yeah. So, so you just said something that you used to believe that you don't believe yeah, now. Mm -hmm. So what's something that you didn't believe in that you do now. Um, You're like the inverse of what I just said. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Uh, something different, I guess, is I believe now that not being alone in the music industry is really important. Mm -hmm. 
right? I used to think that like back when I was like an undergrad or like in high school, that it was, it was all about just me kind of being someone that kind of other people made music with as compared to being a person that is defined by the people I'm making music with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The collaborative part of it and and the, the connections, not only just like in terms of making music, but in, in just staying connected as a community, I found that to be really important during this whole COVID-19 pandemic stuff. Um, like th- th- there was a sense that the music community came together because we all got screwed in a very similar way in terms of income, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm still not imagining when the next time we'll play a concert is. In person, real concert. Yeah, yeah maybe like virtual stuff. She's going to start down in New World and play virtual concerts, I suppose. But um, I don't, I mean, New York Philharmonic just canceled their entire fall season. Like, and I'm sure more orchestras, depending on the location, will will follow a similar thing. Um, yeah, there was a really fascinating critique I actually read about, like the New York Phil like, canceling their season. Um, there's a composer here in Georgia who I won't say her name, but there's a composer who holds a job at a college who I think put up a really interesting perspective on on social media. As she was like, you know, like the New York Phil has canceled their season, and what does that say to the rest of the world when probably one of the eminent orchestras of all time has willingly decided that they don't want to find a way to make something else than just having live music. Mm-hmm. Mm. What does that say to the world about the state of the orchestra? If they are just unwilling to somewhere higher up, so you know what, let's throw some money and try and make some initiatives. Yeah. Anyways, I could, I could see that going both ways. Yeah. Like on the one yep. front, it's like, well, money's dictating that decision more than art on another front it's like well you try running an arts organization without caring about money right (laughs) so yeah i could see it going both ways um what do you think happens when you die (laughs) this is the one i I predict most people will pass on (laughs) (laughs) no i mean i think that you know you become a part of something more yeah i'm down with that yeah um literally i mean like think about all the people that we've talked about in this podcast who are dead yeah. That's wild, yeah. right? It's it's important, you know. Like people matter a lot all the time. Yeah, you know. Um, and I and mean, and that unfortunately for composers, yeah. sometimes composers get more known when they pass away, which is sad. Well, um, that's true of Bach, but, right? Yeah, we yeah, mentioned him a lot. Composers, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, last one is whatever will pop into your memory in the in the moment here. But what what's the time you remember laughing the hardest? Time I remember laughing the hardest. Oh, there's a lot. Um, I think I just thought of one where I was present that if, if somebody forced me to say, when did you laugh the hardest with Nathan? Something popped in. So let me know if you know what I might be talking about, but answer the first one first. The time that I can remember laughing the hardest. <laughs> um. Okay, well, there's there's a time that that I recall just being in such a state of shock I couldn't help but laugh. So <laughs> it was it was it was one of my first few years in New York, and I had a roommate who 
um, I, I had just gotten in this kind of really fancy bag of coffee, kind of back to coffee. And this person that said, Hey, I want to make some cold brew with this coffee. And I was like, cool. Yeah. Here's how you do it. This person had seen me make this coffee like hundreds of times. So I trusted that they knew how to make cold brew coffee. So I come home and, uh, on the next morning, I wake up and I'm expecting there to be a delicious pot of cold brew coffee. And this person's like, yeah, sorry, there's no cold brew coffee. I'm like, what happened? And they're like, well, so a couple things. Uh, first off, I didn't grind the beans and I put in whole beans into the coffee brewer and I poured water over them. And then I realized my mistake. And so I just threw the, the, the wet coffee beans back into your electric grinder oh, no. <laughs> around them. And then I remember this kind of got stuck. So I put what I could back in the coffee machine. Anyways, I put water, but like, here's your liquid and hand me this. Oh <laughs> my God. Like. Did your grinder get, get messed up at all? I had to, I had to replace a few parts. Oh gosh. <laughs> um, but no, you know, laughing is so interesting. It's like laughing the hardest. I mean, I feel like it's all relative, but I mean, a lot of times, like perhaps, are inappropriate for this podcast. But I don't know. What do you have? So you have I, I, cr- I, I am losing the the exact details. But it was something when we were brewing coffee, and it was either when you were in my kitchen and the side of my coffee brewer, it's called the Chemex, just <laughs> broke. Right? Weren't you just like holding it, and the side just like like you know randomly the molecules were like we're done, <laughs> and and it just burst open, and we were in the other room, and you were just like in shock, like you were like I I. I'm speechless. <laughs> but it could have also been um, during one of our coffee brewing things at school. I want to say like one of us did something really stupid like um, maybe it was you. Oh, it was you. I remember what it was. <laughs> you, you, you were <laughs> – we were cleaning up for the day and we were just like emptying out water from various vessels. <laughs> <laughs> and you just like – we were like – cleaning up and you had the thing filled with water and you just poured it on the couch and we were just like nathan what are you doing <laughs> and like you didn't do it on purpose that. you were just like mindlessly like ah, this needs to be empty of water because <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, oh. the whole i mean the whole coffee tuesday thursday wednesday thing was just ridiculous and uh we are just about to get go to our standard whole foods we always went to whole foods and spent all the money we made on like a giant lunch Anyways, that's that's uh, I think that's what my brain was thinking of. Uh, anything else, Yanka? Um, I don't think so. All right, cool. Well, I'm gonna hit stop on the recording. Thanks for listening. We can uh, say goodbye and chill for another minute. Um, but thanks for coming well, on the podcast. I thank y'all man. for having me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, thanks so much. You know, for anyone listening, you can go and hear some of this music I write on my website. Um, there's a couple other cool things coming up, but uh, you go find me online and yeah, we'll be link, back we'll on link, soon. You send me all the, all the places you want to link people to, and we'll put it in the episode notes. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening. And right. yeah. bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Exploring Kodawari. If you enjoyed it, we hope you'll consider sharing it on social media and with friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those help us more than you would think. And if you'd like to help us out in a more substantial way, consider going over to our website to make a donation through PayPal. Links are in the episode notes for this. You can do this as a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. All of that support will help us to set aside time in order to create content for the podcast and the blog. And finally, please get in touch with us and say hi, either on social media or privately through email. We'd love to hear from you. 
Thanks for listening and see you next time.